you're listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. My name is Georgina Durant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners of SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dog or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Kim Griffin. Kim is an occupational therapist and founder of Griffin OT. She qualified as an occupational therapist in Australia in 2003. And since then, she has worked with many children and their families, as well as teachers in Australia, Ireland and the UK. A core focus of her career has been helping children who have sensory processing differences and or motor skill challenges. This includes extensive experience supporting autistic children with developmental delays, dyspraxia, DCD and specific learning difficulties. I've seen Kim speak a few times and I've read her books so I'm genuinely very excited to have her on here. I'm also like I know a lot of you, our listeners are really keen to know what occupational therapists do, as well as learning more about sensory processing differences. So hi, Kim, how are you? Hello, Georgina. It's great to be here. Um, I'm as excited as you are because I've also seen your books and um, (laughs) listened to lots of your stuff. So um, yeah, it's very exciting to finally, I think this is the first time we've actually met in person as such, um, despite having lots of uh, virtual chats chats. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. It's lovely to see you properly. Um, So let's jump right in. Can you explain what an OT is? Because occupational therapist, whenever you talk about it, it sounds like quite a confusing term. People think about like work and when we're talking about kids, they're not at work. So what does an occupational therapist do? Yeah, it does. And I get this, I get this question so frequently that there are days that I just pretend I'm a teacher because it's (laughs) easy to not have to go through that discussion at like seven o'clock at a barbecue. Yeah, Um, and they're like, what do you do? You're like, oh yeah, I'm the teacher. Yeah, and everyone just goes, oh, okay then. And and they move the conversation. Um, I I think, as you rightly said, occupation is very much a misnomer um, for occupational therapy. But the term, I'll just give you a little bit of the history. It actually comes from the concept of occupying time. So Ah. actually doing things. And they found... um, back in the war hospitals so kind of 40s in the 40s that the people who the I suppose they were patients at that time but the people that were occupied by craft and activity actually had better mental health and physical health outcomes wow so occupational therapists were sort of the people that were providing that activity to occupy time yeah um it's also why we're often called basket weavers because m- maybe not in education but in health <laughs> we're always like the ba- oh the basket weavers here and that's because historically we were the ones yeah. that turned up with craft and the original um ot training was all about craft like i no really struggled with it because i'm not very good <laughs> at craft but yeah, you, you literally got taught to, um, yeah, weave. Yeah. Um, and I think so that that's kind of the history. And if you think of occupation as in occupying your time, and I think using the term activity is is probably an easier way. And yes. we, we really focus on participation and independence with activity. So that could be anything you want to do. So for children, it's things like play. You know, that yeah. is... That is, I mean, and that's your area of expertise. Like I see you <laughs> smiling there because you play is such a critical part of being a child yeah. and of learning and development. Um, and then it's things like dressing, self, like all those self-care skills. And then at school, it's the functional skills, like, you know, just even being able to sit in your seat, uh, yeah. to uh, do your handwriting, to cut with scissors, to use your glue stick when the teacher says, can you glue this in? Um, or, you know, to run around on the playground and climb on the equipment or... Uh, catch it's everything isn't it it's literally encompasses yeah. everything that kids do then yeah it, it it does and I think like OTs are the only profession that really look at both um cognition mental health and physical so our training yeah. essentially like I remember <laughs> in first year like we had to do activity analysis of I mean it was always making a cup of tea was the first one but like breaking <laughs> down like what are the cognitive steps? What are the motivational yeah. steps? What are the physical steps? And I mean, I can do that to ad nauseum, but also see it as the whole picture of the goal is to make a cup of tea, but these are the these are the steps and this might be where it could go wrong. And then 
my yeah. job would be to support helping that. So, wow. um, yeah, and I've ended up working with children. So it's very much looking at breaking down things like handwriting or breaking down uh, things like tying a shoelace or things like that. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. So like day in, day out, like what do you do day to day? As, or what does an occupational therapist do day in, day out? Like what do they, yeah. when they go into classrooms or what are they actually doing? You know what? It's so varied depending on where you work. So yeah. when I worked in social services, it was a lot more about equipment provision. So seating or bathing equipment. Um, yeah. I also did adaptations to housing for kids with uh, more physical disabilities. Okay. Um, these days... I work much more in schools. So, um, and I personally prefer working in a much more inclusive way whereby I will go in, I'll observe, I'll chat to the teacher, find out what the concerns are, and then come up with support strategies for those concerns, but really focused on teaching the teacher or the TA how they can use those strategies in the classroom um, rather than necessarily just pulling the kid out, doing my thing, and yeah like and, sort of and weaving I, it into the lesson and being a part of what they do with everybody I suppose it can benefit everyone can't it yeah I mean, not just yeah, for one child <laughs> yeah there's certainly some strategies that can be used across the classroom like some of the um, yeah. I know we're going to talk about movement breaks and things like that but there's certainly some things that um actually if they're part of the whole class it it means that they're used more effectively by everyone really and they sort of yeah. they can support um other children and um, nicer for the child I suppose who's being supported so they don't feel different it's proper inclusion that way isn't it it's not as obvious that they're the one that's needing the support yeah a hundred percent particularly for those kids that have the awareness because I, I yeah. have worked with kids that won't um, that don't want to use a wobble cushion or don't want to use a pencil no, because they don't not. want to yeah. look different. Um, so there was there was actually a really um, nice piece of research done on um, I think it was ball chairs, which are the essentially they're like a yoga ball but on a base. Yeah. And I think they had wobble cushions and a few different seating things. And they actually gave the whole class access to whatever they want. The kids could choose. Oh wow. Um, and I know, like, I know quite often teachers will say, like, oh, but if they've got it, if, if Johnny's got it, then the whole class will want it. And it's, yeah. I mean, a piece of that is around managing, like, well, the expectations are Johnny needs this to learn. It supports his learning. You don't need that yeah. to support your learning. So that's why you don't have it. But this particular class, the kids could choose. And by the end of the sort of research stage, some were using just their normal chair because they didn't like any of the other options and so they, they, they'd almost been able to choose for themselves what worked best for them. That's um, really nice. Yeah, like it, it was just a, I thought it was a very um, inclusive way of kind of looking at that. But yeah, so d- day-to-day really varies. I write, I mean, I do, if I just think of my schools, I mean, I, I will write the reports for their EHCPs and help with yeah. that goal setting. I'll work alongside the SENCO and the speech therapist. Um, I had a meeting y- just yesterday looking at, well, um, how are we going to integrate the supports across the school? How are we going to make best use of the specialist provision space? Um, and kind of looking at that, I do a little bit of work for the NHS at the moment, and that's more with under fives. And there's a lot yeah. of assessment there. So we're looking at autism diagnosis. Um, we're running groups to support communication skills. And I do a lot of sort of uh, nursery visits and that to do more more observations for assessment data but um yeah I think OT's OT kind of it it encompasses so much and it really does depend where you work kind of what an average day would look like um I also do things like these podcasts and I write (laughs) blogs and I I create training yeah like yesterday I was also um recording a piece of training for some therapists so like I do I, I do quite a lot but that is also my um just where my career has taken me so not everybody would be doing would have their finger in as many pies I suppose (laughs) no absolutely so going back to like an OT then so uh, for children who what what sort of children are you helping then in particular so So it's it's a little bit about autistic children yeah I mean I I work with a lot of autistic children but that is because that's kind of the area that I have fallen into I suppose there were a lot of those kids would be the kids that came in and then I've worked in I've worked in a couple of autistic assisted resource units so the um, specialist provisions alongside schools Um, so I I certainly have a lot of experience working with autistic children but um, 
as a pediatric therapist, you might be working with kids with Down syndrome or other um, genetic um, disorders. You could be working with kids with CP, so cerebral palsy in case – Sorry, I, I'll, I'll do my best to avoid acronyms. Um, Don't worry, if I spot any acronyms, I'll jump in and yeah, yeah <laughs> just like get on top of it. But OTs would also work with children that might have um, toiling, toileting challenges, or yeah, often, often on paper we'd get referrals for behaviour. So it might be that the child's hitting, or it might be that the child can't sit still, and quite often that will link to. Um, uh, there's always, I mean, behavior is communication. So there's yeah. always an underlying reason for it. So whether it's sensory or whether it's cognition and ability to join yeah. in. And the other, the other area would be dyspraxia DCD. So is, yeah. is the child not joining in because like yeah, yeah. they genuinely haven't understood what they're meant to be doing and it's not that they're being difficult, yeah, but they genuinely yeah. don't understand. Um, so it, yeah, it, again, it's, it's, it's hugely varied yeah. across that spectrum of, um, send and I know it's really tricky because I was trying to kind of come up with exact figures for sort of who needs OT help but because the Department of Education doesn't actually I'm I'm hoping they will start doing this when they have this uh, online national system they're talking about but they don't actually quantify what kids have on their EHCP so nobody goes through and quantifies like 50% 50% have got speech therapy in their EHCP or yeah. things like that. And there's, there's no kind of national record of that. And I was trying to figure out through um, uh, Amanda Kirby's got some great stuff she's done on kind of percentages of, um, uh, I hate the term disorders, but essentially we're coming from that medical model. So p- percentages of disorders that overlap. And yeah. it's quite huge, like 90%, I think, potentially 90% oh, of wow. autistic kids have got sensory needs. So yeah. You'd expect they would sort of need some OT support. There's there's quite a strong link between specific language disorder and dyspraxia and things yeah. like that. So it's it is tricky to kind of put a figure on exactly the number of kids that need support. But yeah. um, the, the OT can help so many different areas that yeah. um, there there is a big need within the SEND community, even if that's not being met by the number of therapists that are available. Yeah, it's not something that I was going to ask, but I was just thinking when you're saying there's a lot of children that need support, are you finding that there's more children needing support after the pandemic as well? Just, or have you not noticed? I just um, wondered. Is it too what? soon to know? <laughs> to, to be absolutely honest, I think right at the moment, certainly from um, certainly from an assessment perspective and an EHCP kind of need, there is um, – or yeah, there, there's more than we've ever seen, but yeah. I question if that's because the kids sort of missed. Essentially, we missed a year of schooling. Yeah. So there's kids that would have been picked up during that year that weren't picked up, and now yes. we're, we're essentially we're essentially dealing with two years worth yeah, of need in, in one year. Go. So yeah. I am I I'm hoping that it evens itself out once yeah. we get back because even things like EHCPs, you need to have two to three terms worth of data to show this is what we put in place, the child still has additional needs on top of this, here's our evidence. So schools, it was very difficult to collect evidence yeah. in the pandemic. So schools have kind of lost a year of evidence collection. Yeah, um, I know that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I also think, and this is p- absolute personal opinion, but it comes from experience, I did find that um, that a lot of not a lot but quite a few of the um families with send also had potentially other vulnerable people within that family so i found that they were less likely to send their kids back in mm-hmm. when they were able to as well like i i found that there yeah. were some that kind of kept their they, they yeah, seemed yeah, more absolutely. likely to keep their kids at home so particularly for the younger kids that didn't go into nursery that didn't have those yeah. sort of reception experiences they then were thrown into year 1 with yeah very little schooling experience yeah and year one's hard like year one is jump isn't it it, it, and it's and it's it's actually the education national curriculum targets are actually higher than developmental ability oh my goodness which I hate and I and I I but unfortunately, it's the same. It's the same. The reception target is that you'll be writing sentences before you finish, which means you're expecting a four-year-old to write yeah. a sentence. 
yeah. and then they're going into year one. So if they those kids that missed those experiences, because yeah. um, handwriting, it's interesting, reading did okay in the SAT. I hate SATs, but reading did okay <laughs> and handwriting was lower. And not by lot, by just like 7% or something. Yeah. And there was like outrage in the kind of whatever. <laughs> but um, I think handwriting is like reading's kind of something that's a bit more integrated in to society you know you'd read before yeah, yeah, bed yeah. and you'd yeah you, it's easier i think for parents to to f- fit that reading in which probably explains and it, i think it was easier for teachers to um do ebooks and things like that or even yeah. a lot of teachers sat and read their stories to their classes yeah, by yeah, zoom yeah. so it's yeah. easier to facilitate that whereas writing i think was just that bit harder to for families to facilitate at home, particularly yeah. if both parents were still working and trying yeah. to be teacher, and you know yeah, most kids with SEN find writing harder anyway, so it's it's a battle. <laughs> so yeah. you know you do pick your battles as parents. Absolutely, like, handwriting yes. battle is probably not top of your priority. No, no, not at all. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, that's really interesting, isn't it? I wonder as well if because there's been you know the parents have had a lot more time with their children than they normally would because they'd normally be in school mm. if they've picked up on things a bit more as well yeah the, there's some of that. there definitely there definitely has been some sort of discourse around that or even yeah. uh, just having a bit more awareness of maybe how much their child is struggling with stuff because yeah. they're getting because because parents don't get to go in and watch a normal class no. day they just they don't and unless no. unless they're teachers or unless they're teaching um assistants or potentially school governors that they just don't get that opportunity to sit in and look at what a class does what the expectations of the national curriculum I don't think most parents are aware of the expectations in the national curriculum um and and that's not their fault that is just the you know I I'm not aware of so many things I'm aware of them because I need to know about them because that's my job but like if I worked in a different field I also would have no idea and when you ask your kids like what they've done at school you just get I've had a good day <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so you're not going to find out exactly what's happening most of it like my children don't have special educational needs but I did feel during the pandemic like I suddenly was aware of exactly where they were up to I loved being able to know like yeah I know and that and that it's really useful now when they come home from school and they said they found something hard I'm like well you did find this bit hard and like oh remember when we tried this and I love that <laughs> it's a teacher in me but I love that I've had like a glimpse into what yeah. they find difficult and what what they're good at and yeah. how we can support them better yeah and yeah it definitely brings up things that you weren't aware of you're like oh yeah we need to yeah. we need to do a little bit more with that but even um like you know I sit in some math lessons like, I'm quite strong at math but I sit in some math lessons and mm-hmm. I honestly don't understand what is going yeah. on in like year Maths three year four <laughs> but, like just the way the, that t- the way the teacher is yeah and the way particularly like addition how they break it down and it's like you, you yeah. take you, you take you I'm just like column addition I, I sit in lessons and I'm like what happened to column addition yeah, bring <laughs> column addition back can't we just put it in that little yeah <laughs> put them on top just, of each other and just add them up for no it's, it's more complex isn't it this, this is so yeah. hard um and again I think parents through the pandemic probably got to see some of that even yeah you know I was I was sitting in a reception class the other day and the child wanted to write the word eyes because they were doing faces and yeah. she wrote i-g-h-s because wow, that's the sound yeah. they're learning and <laughs> it is and she was correct phonically yeah she was correct and it, her teacher's like, well done you, like perfect, because phonically yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it was 100% correct. But my brain, my non-teacher phonic brain yeah, is just yeah, going, yeah. that's so wrong and we're going to have to, <laughs> like if that was my brain, I would get to like year two where they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I's are spelled E-Y-E-S. be like, <laughs> Yeah, I must admit that was something during the pandemic I struggled with was when my children were writing things phonetically accurate. Mm. And I was like, but it's wrong. <laughs> Let's just get it right. It's like, I couldn't, it's hard. And I think it's just a different way of when I was taught to spell it, mm. wasn't, it wasn't the same way. And it's hard yeah. to be accepting of something that, you know, is not right. But I get the the process obviously works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it it makes, but, but I, I, again, it's that glimpse in that you got yeah, from yeah. COVID that parents don't, typically um get so like I know that there and this is all my sort of opinion and experiences so I know that there is definitely research coming out showing that some of the well-being measures are down and there are I mean I know that overall um some of the academic performance is down but I am I'm hoping in terms of the send 
and we won't know for another two years, no. but I am hoping in terms of the current loadings on kind of send needs that it's it's more of just a we lost a year of evidence gathering yeah. and of kind of observation. So we're now having to double down essentially on that. Yeah. But, no, uh, that does knows. make sense. Yeah. So in terms of how you got into the role, because I imagine there'll be teachers listening, especially mm. ones in special educational needs, who'll be thinking, oh, OT sounds like a good job. <laughs> so how yeah. did you how do you get how do you become an OT? And uh, what made so, you want to do it? How uh, do you, what's so, your background and what do people yeah. do? <laughs> um I mean OT's a fantastic career because it's just so varied. Like there's it's not just children, there's like a whole host of OTs working with adults as well. Yeah. Um I fell into OT back in 1997. I went to a um, university discussion. I I was tossing up whether to do social work or medicine. And yeah. at the time, there was no undergraduate medicine. So I kind of, I, I did want to do medicine, but yeah. there was no undergraduate courses. So I had to do, um, I had to do a course before I could then apply yes. to go and do medicine. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I thought social work potentially, because it was sort of related psychology maybe. And then I went and I listened to the Judith Trevan Hawke, who was the, was the um, head of the department. They were just setting up the course. So I was the first year in Townsville in my hometown and just her, her enthusiasm and her description of OT. And one thing I knew I really wanted to do was travel. So she's, she was like, once you've got your qualification, it's recognized across the world. And I was Brilliant. just like, actually, it's sold. <laughs> yeah, literally, I was like, that that's perfect. Because it also yeah. meant that it would be a good one um, to go into medicine from if that was yeah. the path I took. Um and I also, for me, I wanted to do something that would lead to a job at the end. Like I wasn't yeah. um, looking to do, no offence to things like art degrees, but I wasn't looking to go to yeah. university and come out and not have a profession. So that's kind of how I got into OT. And then I started it. I had no idea what it was. Like no idea. Absolutely <laughs> no idea. Uh, I mean, most of my cohort, you know, a third of them were there because they didn't get into physio and they were just biding their time to get to physio. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think on the first week when they're like, does anyone know what an OT does? Like one hand went up and it was the mature age <laughs> We've student. We've no idea why we're here. Yeah, like literally. And it was the mature age student who I think had had OT because they'd had an illness. Like it was literally hardly any of us knew. I think that's different now. Like I think, yeah. I think nowadays there's much more awareness and a lot of the um, colleges ask that you've done maybe a week um, work experience or something like that. But yeah. Probably after that, after nobody had put their hand up, they're like, okay, we need to get, <laughs> we need to yeah, get them to get yeah. some work experience so they know what they're doing. Okay, I mean, <laughs> they know why they're here. 25 years ago though. So um, <laughs> yeah. And then, so that's kind of, and I, I went in straight from school. So yeah. Um, yeah, and then I, I fell into paediatrics really because it was the first – most PEDS-OTs always wanted to be PEDS-OTs. Like that was their goal in life. I um, struggled to find work because I needed to stay geographically just because of my circumstances at the time. So I fell into a, um, a early intervention maternity leave cover actually post-uni. Oh. And I think – part of the reason a lot of people didn't apply was because it was three, it was only part-time and it was, it was maternity cover. So it wasn't like a um, real, I suppose it was a good job. It was an amazing job, but a lot of people would be like wanting something permanent and full-time. So I then took the job at the hospital after that because I got offered that kind of whilst I was there. So yeah, it kind of, for me, it led to then another job in the same area in pediatric jobs at the hospital within the same health service. And then, um, I came over to the UK, I locumed around and did different bits and pieces, but I did a couple of children's jobs. And then I went, I realized from doing those bits of adult locuming that I didn't particularly enjoy working with adults and that I much preferred working with children. So, um, I took a job then setting up an early intervention team in Dublin, um, which uh, when I got there, they'd pulled, they'd frozen the funding for the team and I was the only one they'd employed. So they, oh, they wow. put me, so I'd gone over, I'd completely relocated to um, work with children under five and I ended up in a community role when the average age of my kind of clients was 70 I think so I did I did like <laughs> slightly different to what you were oh imagining my God. I, did, 
um, I did nearly a year working with older adults, mostly. Like there were some younger ones, but just the area I was yeah. was mostly older adults. Um, and that really reinforced that I much prefer working in yeah, pediatrics. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and then I came back to the UK and I've done – I worked – a little bit of locuming again in social services and wheelchairs, but started working with another therapist who had a private practice. And from mm. there, I've done quite a lot of private practice or contracting into schools. Um, and I did my sensory integration training along the way. Um, started that 15 years ago, actually. I was chatting to someone wow. yesterday who was doing something for me and we were trying to figure out when we met and it was about <laughs> 15 years ago. Um, yeah, and I've done... More recently, a bit of a focus on attachment um, because I started doing some work for the post-adoption support fund, um, which is funding that's available for um, families of adopted children to get um, services and support, so therapy support, um, not other services, therapy support. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of my, my career. So can you tell us more about Griffin OT as well? Because that's your like online Mm. thing as well that you've set up. You do so much, Kim. I don't know how you have the time. (laughs) When I write this down, it's like you do this and then you do this. Yeah, to be honest, it's a gradual build up though. I think people kind of look at it and go, wow. But I look at it and go, that is like six years of (laughs) like me slogging away on my weekends or me slogging away in school. You know, I've got a list, a massive list to do in August because that's when I have a bit more I was saying to you earlier, like I've got um, stuff I want to get done because I've got, I know I've got time this month and a bit more free headspace. Um, Yeah, I I set the online arm of Griffin OT up, uh, it was five and a half years ago now, um, because... And that actually came from working from my adoption support fund work because I was working with families who would never normally be able to afford private therapy. And I was seeing a lot more around kind of what they weren't getting. Um, And also at the time, at the time, I know this sounds crazy now, but at the time there was no dedicated online training for a sensory. It was all in person or there was a little bit of stuff coming online, but it was always people had just stuck a camera in the room when they were doing a face-to-face presentation. So it was not, the quality was awful. Like if there was a tech error, the tech error was in the video. If it just, it wasn't like it was, it was great content, but just the delivery for online, I, it, it wasn't great for online. Yeah. So I made the decision to that this could be done much more cost effectively and also um, much more accessible for families and for schools. And that's what started my journey of putting information onto griffinot.com in sort of yeah. the terms of blogs and that. I did some free sensory training just as an introduction. And then I've got paid courses which go into more depth. So, but it very much started from wanting to. Yeah, because the available courses at the time, although they've all come down now, they had gone, the face-to-face training had gone, some of it had gone from sort of £50 to £100 almost in the space of six months. And I just, and it was typically in London or Birmingham. So it, and I just, I'm just so mindful that teachers, most teachers have got kids, not all of them, but, you know, it's very hard for teachers to take time off it's impossible to take yeah, time off your yeah, yeah. time usually I mean you kind of can but like it's very hard for parents to travel for a course that's kind of nine to four because you got to get yeah. your kids to school you've got to pick your kids up from school yeah. and it just yeah so it, it it came very much from wanting to make the information more accessible yeah, yeah. No, that's really good and a lot of the families you're supporting as well they need it more they need it to be more accessible because the children might need them more as well so it's not it's not as easy perhaps as putting them in an after school club for you know what I mean it's yeah Yeah. there's a bit more support that's needed that's really cool um so if we have a look then so one of the main areas that you support are children with sensory processing differences Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about sensory processing differences and what they are okay so I We'll start just by saying that sensory processing, I know it's used as a disorder. I use the term differences because it is not actually a medical, yeah. um, it's not It's not a medical diagnosis these days no. as much as people will use it in that term. It very much is it, it, incredibly common within autism, um, but there are also some other diagnoses that you will get that differences in sensory processing. And when I'm talking about that, 
I'm not talking about a sensory impairment, so being mm-hmm. blind or having a hearing impairment and a cochlear implant. I'm talking about um, particularly with the most people would think about it in terms of what I would say is a reactivity level, so reaction to sensation. And the sensation could be from your five main senses, so taste, touch, smell, Uh, hearing or vision but it could also be from your internal sensations which are your vestibular or balance sense proprioception so your um, feedback from your muscles and interoception which is the feedback from your internal organs if you don't know what those terms mean I would suggest my free training covers them like there's five minute videos on each of them and it goes it, it explains them in a way that everybody always says is very helpful and the reactivity refers to the intensity of the response so if we're just talking about reactivity so some children or adults might have a bigger response to a sensation in their nervous system that's often called sensitivity mm-hmm. others might have a slower response or reaction and um those kids tend not to notice that something's happened or they need it to be more intense before they notice yeah. and sometimes if they're not getting it very well they'll seek out more Mm-hmm. Um, so an example, maybe with touch sensitivity would be a child who doesn't like the messy play trays in yeah. a reception or nursery, and they don't like getting glue on their hand because they don't like the stickiness of yeah. it. Um, or you might have a child whose movement sense, their vestibular sense is slower. So they're really slumped at their desk and they really find it hard to kind of get that postural stability yeah. to sit up. Um, so that's kind of the reactivity side of it, but when OTs look at sensory processing differences, we also include dyspraxia within sensory processing because it came from sensory integration, which is, I mean, again, sensory processing, sensory integration, a lot of people would use um, interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, very sort of various camps would separate them very specifically, but that is yeah. far too, uh, too, general, too deep enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, say general teachers and parents sort yeah. of trying to understand this just need to know that there's the reactivity differences, yeah. which might mean that there's sensitivity to sensations or there's slower responses, or that it those differences can also it do also include dyspraxia, which I yeah. we'll, we'll talk a little bit more yeah. about. And so you were saying it's not just because I think a lot of people just think about the sort of five main senses, don't they? They forget yeah. about like the internal bit. I find yeah. that really interesting, like the interoception. Would like being hangry, like <laughs> I get hangry when I'm like hungry yeah. and I get angry <laughs> because yeah. I need some food. Is that sort of a relatable example of sort of how you're, you're affected by sort of your internal stimuli? Yeah, 100%. So in, in interoception, it's a bit of a buzz term at the moment, um, yeah. but it, it really relates to anything, any of those messages you're getting from inside. So that could be going to the toilet. Um, yeah. That could be hungry. And hungry is essentially you have ignored I'm... that hunger response because your body will be telling you, yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit hungry. Yeah, yeah. And you're <laughs> like, it's oh, <laughs> this report. Go away. So you <laughs> Yeah. Or yeah. like what, whatever you're doing. And, and then you're a bit more hungry, but you, you, you ignore it. And by the time you get hungry, your body's reached a point of just, um, it's, in, it's essentially imbalanced. They call it, yeah. they call it homeostasis is the big word. Yeah. So that kind of balance. But by the time you get to hungry, your, <laughs> um, nervous system has reached a point of imbalance that it can't focus properly anymore and you're then really um uh, it, it, I wanted to say impulsive impulsive is not quite the right word but like you just your patience is gone yeah. and you just need and and the, the piece for that is that you're hungry um and there's certain kids well and adults to be honest that just don't notice those sensations and it's also it's also one that kind of um, in terms of behaviour management in school, mm. if you've got a child who is dysregulated because they're hungry, sending them to the, I don't know, timeout or putting them on the yeah. yucky cloud or doing any of those kind of behavioural things. The yucky cloud. Or whatever, you know, sort of like sad cloud, I don't know. There's, there's so many different things I come across in school. That. It's not the yucky cloud, sorry. It's the, like, <laughs> I've got like a rainbow and the sun and the 
a yeah. sad cloud. I don't know. I, they're used less <laughs> and less because I know there's a more yeah. of a focus on kind of um, <laughs> positive, like positive behavior engagement. Yeah. But um, it's kind of separate. And I think having that awareness of um, sensory differences and things like interoception just give that extra piece of information in terms of behavior management. Yeah. It's hungry. They need yeah. to eat. Like, yeah, that is their need. That's what if yeah. you can't do anything about it, telling them to sit still or whatever no, exactly. isn't going to work, it, is it? It just it isn't going to work. And I think, um, you know, I know teachers, particularly in, um, I, I see it more in special schools, but like they will have like a bag of rice crackers in the cupboard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, there's certain. Um, I and like one school, like particularly through COVID, actually, they um because they had to separate the kids out in the lunch hall, they moved the lunch break. So some of the kids were having lunch at like 11.30. Yeah, yeah. So, and some were having it really late as yeah. well as the other side of the spectrum, wasn't there? And I know yeah. that's a big effect, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But, and like the kind of, the later one was okay because they'd had like their morning break. So they yeah. kind of had something to eat. But the kids that were having lunch at 11.30 yeah, then had this three, three and a half hour gap before they went home. So I know one teacher who just put in another snack break because yeah, she's like, they're like just... Famous. <laughs> they're not yeah, it, no. <laughs> but I it all links back to what you were saying about like the impact on behavior and behavior being mm. like an unmet need isn't it or like mm. it can be an unmet need and they and they, mm. it's not just not just hunger but other sort of mm. so could it be like I don't know their school uniform being scratchy if they're really yeah. sensitive to that that yeah. could cause a behavior that yes. you're not understanding that it's linked to that or like I don't know yeah. really busy displays or noises yeah. or things like that would they all yeah. impact on behavior yeah a hundred percent because if you and um Joanna Grace talks beautifully about particularly visual overload and yeah. also um uh visual what they call habituation which is essentially our brain kind of knows where everything is when we walk into a room and it tends yeah. to only notice something that's different and sometimes yeah, it doesn't yeah. even notice things that are different because yeah. you just kind of the, the brain doesn't reprocess that information some kids reprocess that information every time they come in so every time oh, they wow. come in they're looking every gosh, day I had no idea about yeah. that gosh how, that must be super like overstimulating yes. to see every time you go into somewhere and yes. everything be new oh, yes and then the um yeah the display boards and things like that if your brain has difficulty filtering out and ignoring that information it is constantly going to be attending to it like yeah. even you know I, I have one little boy I've recently started working with who fidgets with stuff and he's so impulsive he like it it, it doesn't matter if you put it on the table he will pick it up and he will start fidgeting it with yeah. it and my solution to that is I have nothing on the table yeah. like because because yeah. that 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 just stops him yeah. picking it up and becoming distracted but I'm not like it doesn't matter how many times I say to him leave it on the table yeah. I, he doesn't have the kind of impulse control to, yeah. to do that so yeah that there's 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 a lot of different things that can be impacted by the, the the that sort of sensory processing and the brain's reactions to sensation like even things like um you know some print some classrooms have got printers in them um yeah. which might actually link to another classroom so it's not even that the printing is coming from the teacher. Yeah. It's not like the teacher's like, I'm about to print something. It's just this printer yeah, goes it's off. Random printing noise. Yeah. So that's like a for some kids, that's like a what's that? Like almost sends them into fight flight. And yeah. they're sitting next to that all the time. And that's a trigger for them that they might not be able to verbalize. You potentially get that behavior of they're not joining in or they're trying to get out of their seat all the time or yeah. they're totally disengaged because they've gone into overload. So there's there's so much um so that you've got to be a detective, isn't it? To try yeah. and work out these these things that could be causing behavior or yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, really it's it's not just sensory, like there's so many other elements in there, but I think sensory is important to consider as part of your your analysis because, you know, it may be language processing, it may yeah. be attachment, it may be, you know, it may just, it, it may be um, something's going on at home, like just that general, yeah. uh, you know, some kids are in really, really awful home situations yeah. so or even you know even something like the death of a parent like that yeah. there's things that happen that that do impact um yeah. and sensory is one of those things that 
I, I mean, I'm very biased, but I think needs to be sort of included in the. Yeah. Um, so for a teacher then, if they're listening and they're thinking, right, how can they support children with like sensory processing differences? What can they be doing like tomorrow? <laughs> what yeah. can they start doing to make a difference? So I think the first thing is just having that awareness. So yeah. kind of bringing that knowledge of the senses into your understanding of kind of how well, development happens and also what could be impacting that child's ability to engage. So just have it as one of your, oh, could this be sensory? Yeah. Um, is the first step. Because actually once you start thinking about it, you, you'll really start to sort of notice um, yeah. potentially it could be, especially if it's always happening when the printer goes off or if it's always happening. You know, some stuff's quite simple once you're looking for yeah. it to, um, to kind of pick up on. And if it is something in the environment, um, then some of that stuff's quite easy to change. So, you know, yeah. the printer again, it may be that the child sits right at the front of the class where it's less of a distraction. Um, yeah. Or if it's the wall displays, you know, there is a piece around having the more distracting stuff at the back. Um, I know some classrooms are fab and have got like uh, – uh, like lines of um, string across the ceiling and stuff hanging down. And like, you know, for some kids that is highly overwhelming. So it's looking at how can we support that um, maybe. And a lot of the time it is just dropping it back. Um, yeah, so they're kind of the, the simpler things in terms of noise. Um, you know, if you notice that the child struggles with being touched, yeah. um, don't put them in the corridor side. Put them on yeah. the side of the classroom that – there's less kids walking around. Like don't put them next to the pencil box because yes. the pencil box is going to have a lot of traffic. Yeah, so that's a really good away. point. Yeah, just yeah. managing it just slightly, just little changes can make a huge impact, couldn't yeah. they? You're going to be less jostling and less knocking into yes. you. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or if you've got a kid that doesn't like being touched and a kid that's like got no body control, don't yeah. put them next to each other. No, that's <laughs> no that be, doesn't sound like a good idea. A disaster well. for the yeah, it's going to be a disaster for that kid that doesn't like being touched. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the the more into, I mean, the interoception stuff um, that that does need to be taught. Um, yeah. for some kids like and and it's just bringing that awareness to it there's there's a beautiful interoception toolkit which was created by Emma Goodall which is available on the South Australian government website um, okay. because that's who she um, I can give you the link for it yeah yeah it's a, um, it and that's it's a really simple curriculum that just goes through kind of um, uh, yeah what could what what <laughs> what's it like when you're hungry what's it kind of yeah. what, what are the things that so it like teaching it, it to kids so they're yeah, aware of what they're actually feeling it's a simple scheme of work I mean they call it a scheme of work in the UK that that kids yeah. can go through um and it's free so like I, I quite like um mentioning that one because it's just free um I, and I'm working on um I know a lot of schools use zones of regulation um yeah. I there's great things about that program. There's less great things about sort of that linear piece. And I always worry when I hear kids be told to get back into the green zone without any support around it. Yeah. Um, so some of those, those tools are helpful, but I think they need to be used alongside teacher training, TA yeah. training, and also kind of more specific teaching of the kids. And yeah. I'm working on, I do that myself in my schools and I'm working on making that kind of curriculum or learnt scheme of work more widely available. It'll be, it's going to take me another year to get it together, but that's kind yeah. of my, my next project is getting that nice. curriculum out. Um, so it is, it's teaching those kids more explicitly. And even you can bring that into literacy lessons. Like you, mm -hmm. so many of our stories have got opportunities um, yeah. to just stop for that minute and go, how do you think that character's feeling? What do you... Yeah. When have you felt like that? Yeah. Yeah, when have you felt like that? So it's there, there are opportunities because I know teachers are totally overloaded. So adding another thing can sometimes feel quite overwhelming, but there are yeah. opportunities where you can pull it in just in lessons as they're naturally occurring and using yeah. sometimes those in the moment. You know, if a child's struggling in math, you know, just going, oh, I can see that you're, um, well, I wouldn't use the term dysregulator, but, you know, I can see that yeah. your body's a bit frustrated at the moment. What can we do to calm your brain down to then let you help 
to think yeah. about your math work or what can we do to help with that that um, links nicely into what I was going to ask about sensory movement breaks I suppose mm. as well doesn't it so can you explain yeah. what a sensory movement break exactly is it kind of it's self-explanatory I suppose but <laughs> yeah it is I mean I I think the easiest way to think about it is if you, you as adults like I mean, yeah. we do expect kids to sit for long periods and if you yeah. think of yourself as an adult I think COVID's a perfect example of that. The number of Zoom calls you had to sit on. And like, by the end of, you know, I know myself within sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, I'm just like, I I just need to move. And if you go for that move, if you go for that quick walk or you even... I leave my tea in the kitchen, so I have to get up and go and like for, if, I, if I want a refill, I've got to get up and go and get the teapot in the kitchen that. because that just gives me a natural movement break. Yeah, and that the movement just helps to essentially wake your brain back up and yeah. wake your body back up so you can focus. And it's it's can be really easily integrated into the class. I think it's helpful two things I think it's helpful to either do it as a whole class so yeah. just everybody gets up I know some teachers do a quick little wiggle and stretch yeah some teachers use videos I've got some like three four minute videos on my website um go noodle has got if, if teachers aren't familiar with go noodle most teachers are these I days think they are now, aren't they? yeah, yeah they've got, like go noodle's got some fantastic stuff and they've got um they've got stuff for kind of calming down as well and alerting so some yeah. teachers I know use the calm stuff when the kids come in from break because or in from lunch because they're like they're 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 thinking is very disorganized because they've been running around and they're excited and they've got to come back in so um yes I think it's looking at where you can easily embed that into the day and quite often I find it's helpful to do it if you've done your lesson input before the kids have then got to do their independent work, have a quick yeah. little break or between math and English or kind of just set those natural transitions within within the day. Yeah. Just add a little bit of movement in. Or, it's almost like thinking as an adult, like at what point would I need a tea break? Yeah. Because <laughs> like, that is, is. Uh, you say that is my sensory movement break mm. myself. Like I'll do some work, I'll go on a call, do a bit yeah. of a podcast and then I'll be like, all oh, right, I'll go and make myself a cup of tea and I'll go for a little yeah. wander around. And so it's, it's like breaking the day up for that, isn't it? But not yeah. giving the kids tea. It is. <laughs> But and it's the same like because even teachers in the classroom typically they might be still for the input, but then during the independent work they're walking around the classroom yeah. talking on everyone. So teachers are getting that natural yeah they're having a break yeah break, but the kids are still expected to sit in the same place yeah. for that entire lesson. That's um, a really good point as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so potentially as a teacher, you're not noticing kind of how still the kids are because you've had that chance to get up and yeah. go and check on your six different tables. Um, the other thing I more advocate for these days is sort of a movement space in the classroom that kids can Mm -hmm. go for just that quick little top up so if you see that a child is um kind of wiggling about and not focused send them to i I call it the move it zone because that just doesn't and and just um I, i tend to find it's important to have a couple of um, pictures there so I, I've got my own cards which will be ready to go in, in the next couple of weeks actually um, but mm. I know Twinkle's got a load of movement break stuff yeah, as yeah, well we and it's just putting those you know these are the three things you can do come up and do them in sequence so it's got um gives them a bit of structure some ideas of what they can actually do when they're there rather than they get to this move it zone and then they're like now what <laughs> well 100 and and also it helps with the um behavior management of it yeah. because the other thing I often see um and again not a criticism and a lot of this is because people haven't had training and they've been told that they've got to have a movement break for the kids and they Mm. they set it up but then they kind of don't I feel sometimes teachers don't feel like they've got permission if the OT has said they've got to have this they then don't feel like they've got the permission to behavior management if it's going wrong but like yeah that's true yeah if the kids aren't using the movement zone appropriately Mm. and if they're not coming back to their desk more organized and ready to work then it's not the right solution for them and if you've got the kind of three two three four activities there and a structured sequence that also gives you the behavior management of john you're meant to be doing the movement zone it says star jumps warrior and breathing you're not doing that you are either following the rules or you're sitting back down like it, it allows you to kind of set the expectations, which I find is sometimes not done as well as it could be yeah. um, for some of those bits and pieces. 
Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I think I could talk to you all day about sensory processing differences. <laughs> I find it fascinating. I really do. If we, if we chat about dyspraxia as well, because I know that's another area you said you support and OTs in general support. Can you explain what dyspraxia is? Because I feel, again, it's a term oh, I think yeah. not everyone's aware of. Um, it is, or it's a term that kind of people will be like, oh, I'm a bit clumsy, must be dyspraxic. Yeah. It kind of... It, it gets thrown around as much as it dyslexia does. does. Like anyone who spells a word wrong is yeah. dyslexic. Um, so dyspraxia, the term kind of comes um, very much from the sensory. In pediatrics, it comes very much from Ayres, who was the original researcher in sensory integration from her work. And she used it to describe the difficulty children have when they can't there's three components she would put in coming up with an idea of what to do actually planning how you do that idea and then doing it but the core component for dyspraxia is that planning just planning how to do it so you know and dyspraxia again is also not a formal diagnosis developmental coordination disorder is the formal diagnosis and a lot of people would use that term interchangeably now so dcd dyspraxia kind of yeah interchangeably um there's also a lot of work around that's showing that um dyspraxia is not just about the movement difficulty but there's executive function difficulties there as well so things like time management and just general planning and organization of just space and things that are going on and general life is often um difficulty so you know as those children become adults things like budgeting and things like getting to appointments on time and even planning shopping so that they've got the right food like just all of those kind of grown-up um planning things um but um I've lost my train of thought there because I disappeared into adults um so (laughs) so it's it's very much that piece around can the child plan what you've asked them to do and kids with dyspraxia will really struggle with that and they're all that they, they, once they've practiced it they're fine but it's that initial figuring it out is hard and mm. the other thing they're usually not very good at is generalizing so if they've learned one thing they won't necessarily take that to the next so if you've done tennis in PE and yeah. then you start um badminton You'd expect most kids would be like, all right, it's a bat, there's a net, we're hitting yeah, that. Yeah, we're similar, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like there's degrees of similarity there, whereas dyspraxic kids won't necessarily make that generalization. And you yeah. may need to actually go through and say, you've got to hold the bat. Remember, we did this in tennis, hold it with this hand. You've got to aim for the oh. shuttlecock. It's so it's kind of, and, and I think that's where um, kids with dyspraxia often get labeled as lazy or not interested or unmotivated is because kind of people make the assumption that they could do last week's tasks so that's kind of 80 percent of this week's task why aren't they just getting on with it but actually for them it's like I'm back at zero percent that's so interesting I had no idea about that side of it for me Mm. like you say I I knew about the it's awful weather feeling like clumsy and that yeah. side of uh, that side of things I knew yeah. more about than that wow yeah. well it, it, it used to be called clumsy child syndrome I think Did it actually yeah, oh, yeah I goodness. think I think the original um I think some of the original wording yeah. was yeah clumsy oh, child gosh, syndrome that's awful, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh man like there are so oh. many like <laughs> even when I started in the 90s like the, yeah. the termino- there's been such a shift in terminology goodness yeah um, even in the last 10 years, I would say, yeah. but certainly if you go back and read stuff from 50 years ago, oh, it's yeah, the terminology it's is um, outrageous yeah. for today's um, Yes, time. definitely. So in terms of supporting children with dyspraxia in your classroom, again, if we're thinking of practical ideas, if someone's listening, thinking, oh gosh, mm. so-and-so in my class does have dyspraxia, I've not mm. really given it much thought, what should, what should they yeah. be doing more to help them? So I think the first thing is just that acknowledgement of actually we might be back at zero percent. So I need to treat you like you've not come across this before. Giving um, a physical demonstration is quite helpful rather Mm -hmm. than just that verbal instruction. So and I think that's important for once kids get into sort of key stage two in particular and key stage three, because it is just here's your instruction, get on with it. Um, yeah, so sort of whereas, modelling it and making them aware of what you've actually got to do and what it looks like rather than just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. 
And sometimes talking that modeling out aloud as well. So like, I'm going to do this because that's what, you know, just giving them the plan essentially, Um, particularly for writing some of the sentence starters or those, I I never know what you guys call them, but that kind of outline, the the outline documents where you've kind of got the first paragraph has to have this or kind of those documents can be really helpful for kids to get their ideas sorted yeah yeah um or mind mapping sometimes particularly if the kids can't the older kids can't organize their thinking doing that mind mapping with them and teaching them how to then so I would normally put the topic in the middle and then have four or five boxes and then have to have three or four ideas for each of them and then yeah. teaching them how to turn that into a sentence. Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's the tricky bit as well, isn't it? Yeah. Once you've got that, then actually getting it on. And these are, yeah. I suppose, are useful strategies, not just for children, but but for the children when they grow up as well to be mm. able to use when they're older, aren't they? Because like yeah. when they're at work, they can use them. It's good to have these, like a toolkit themselves, the strategies yeah. that they can use because it's not going to go away. <laughs> no, no, and it, and it is teaching that kind of, components of planning um and the other thing is just give that bit more time um and i sometimes i'll also get parents it can be helpful for some kids to um pre-teach so like particularly like pe for example if because usually schools have got like a annual plan and you Mm -hmm. kind of change every six months you know you might do football first term athletics next term so sometimes it's handy to give parents the heads up on what's yeah. happening next term so they can do a bit of practice at home. Yeah, do um, that sort of prep right that early sort of this is yeah. how to hold a tennis racket. This is what yeah, you yeah, basically so beforehand so they're catching, getting them up to the same level as their peers, I suppose. Yeah, and, and just giving them a bit of an idea around it yeah. rather than it just being this completely new thing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's brilliant. I like that. And so it does dyspraxia affect sort of handwriting and that side of things? It's really common. I would say it's very common for the that the handwriting to kind of be the referral reason right. into OT and things like that. So it although there's handwriting is quite a complex task because you've yeah. got the motor component of it, but yeah. you also have the language component and you also have then the organizational kind of structure component. Yeah. So it's and some kids some kids only have problems with the actual physical component. And if you ask them to tell you, and you can separate this out really quickly, because if yeah. they can tell you their, if they can literally talk for 10 minutes on the question and give you the answer verbally, yeah. but they can't write it down, their problem is more that motoric piece. But you have got some kids that can't give you the answer verbally either. So for yeah. them, it's kind of, it, it's a bigger challenge and there will definitely be some language processing things in there as well yeah. as the motoric piece. So I think it's important to separate that out because for the kids that have got problems with just the motoric piece, when they get older, voice dictation can be an absolute lifesaver yeah. for them these days. Yeah. Um, whereas the kids that struggle just even with getting the composition there and answering the qu- or understanding yeah. and then answering the question, it, it, it kind of has to go back to more the language support first um, and voice dictation and things like that may not make them any quicker. Yeah, it's really interesting because handwriting, it, it's not just, you know, copying out letters onto a sheet, is it? And getting getting the flow of the letters and getting your cursive no. writing good. It's, it's no. a lot deeper than that, isn't it? There's a lot more going it on. Is. Yeah, and that's why you'll see kids, um, they can do that practice sheet beautifully, but then yeah. when you get them to actually write in their books, it's um, it doesn't cross over because the amount of mental load to then compose work in a book and figure out the answer to the question, figure out the spelling, figure out the sentence structure. It it's They've had to do so much thinking to get their letters right that they yeah. can do that in isolation. But when you then add all of those other components to it, the, the, the neatness much, of the yeah. letters just goes out of the brain because they're focused yeah. on like spelling and getting full stuff <laughs> in. When, I'm not going to ask you all my questions because we've, we've talked a long time, but one thing I'm really interested in your opinion on is pen licenses because that links to, I've actually, I know your opinion on this, which is why I'm asking you because I've actually read your blog on this. But yeah. uh, so those that aren't aware, pen licenses are certificates which children can get to have permission to write in pen. Obviously, yeah. as someone who supports children with special education needs and disabilities, I know what your opinion on this is going to be. But yeah. what are your views, Kim, on pen licenses? I mean, I just find them really unhelpful because yeah. most of my kids don't get them until the concessionary pen licenses are given out in either term three or, or term three here, term four in Australia. Um, and I just, it's so demotivating for those kids yeah. because they're, they're never going to have the neat, neat handwriting that qualifies for a pen license. And 
what it also does is it disadvantages them when they then get into the next year oh, because gosh. the next year yeah. they have to write in pen. So and they've, they've not had the practice. practice. I hadn't thought of that side of it. Yeah, I just always saw it yeah. as something that seemed really unfair. Like I just could see the children that wouldn't get their pen licenses, yeah. and it's like it's it's the ableist, really, isn't it? It's like it's, you haven't you haven't you, you, very ableist. <laughs> you can't do this, so we're we're not going we're to give you. Yeah. yeah, but it, it gives them less practice. Um, yeah. Also, some kids actually find writing in pen easier because there's less friction on the paper. So the kids yeah. that have got um, the kids that get a really tired hand really quickly. Um, they find pen easier because there's less friction on the paper. If you've got more of the handwriting, yeah, like a sort of wet pens. sort of pen that sort of um, yeah. flows better, it would be easier yeah. than scratching it out on a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and the other thing I find is that kids that make a lot of errors, they quickly just transition back to pencil themselves because they what they don't realize about pen is you can't rub it out and you yeah. can't correct it, you can't erase it. So they actually kind of almost self-select then, but it doesn't make them feel as bad because they've yeah. decided they want to write in pencil, which is yeah. different to not getting their pen license, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So before we finish then, tell us just a bit about your books and all of that side of things. I do know about books, but um, yeah. you've got 100 Ideas to Support Sensory Processes and Differences, which was out yeah. in August last year, which was a similar time to mine. So I'm very aware of it. It's a really good book. Um, and then your latest one, I'm not sure how much you're allowed to tell, tell us about it, but I was very lucky to be able to see the first complete draft in January. So thank you for that. Yeah, Kim. so um, yeah, I've got lots going on. Um, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I was just thinking about it. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I 100 Ideas is part of the um, Bloomsbury series. So they've got yeah. lots of 100 Ideas. My topic is sensory processing. So it is exactly what it says on the title. There's 100 mm-hmm. Ideas in there for sensory processing in the classroom. I spend the first sort of two chapters laying the scene and de- sort of making um, definitions of different concepts. And then the rest of the book is support strategies you can use in the classroom. Yeah. It's designed, you can just pick it up and read each idea is a standalone, so you don't have to read the whole thing in order. Um, the next book I'm quite excited about is coming out with J.K. Jessica Kingsley, but not. I don't think it's due until March, so it's okay. a little bit of a way off. A way um, for that. It's brilliant. But if you join my mailing list, I'll definitely um, send a broadcast out. Um, yeah. or if you join my socials, I'll definitely send a broadcast when it's out. Um, it's called Success for Sensory Strategies or Sensory oh. Supports. And it's very much a step-by-step guide of how you can use your assess plan, do review cycle within using sensory supports at school. So it lays that foundation. It gives you a way to kind of assess need, a very simple but um, a basic kind of assessment, goal setting, and then it's got the strategies at the end, which... I know everyone just wants the strategies, but I always find if you understand the arousal and the reasons you're doing that, um, it makes so much more sense when you get to the strategies and you can use them more effectively. Um, So that's the books. And then the website, there's lots of training on sensory processing on there. There's fine motor skills training, which is just a two-hour course on uh, development of fine motor skills, development of scissor skills, pencil skills. I'm adding in development of handwriting to that over the summer. So by September, October, the handwriting content will be in that. Um, and I've also got, I've just, um, it's, it's pretty much ready to go, Write Rules, which is my handwriting program, which very yeah. much focuses on teaching, teaching handwriting in letter formation patterns okay. using songs. So there's a different song um, there's a different song Brilliant. for each letter formation group. So there's start at the top and there's no lifting and there's starts like curly curse. So it's oh, it's linked together. Good. And I, like the kids love it. They just get up and they're, they're doing their dances. And then you, you, you hear them writing and they're singing the rules as they're, as they're oh. writing. Um, but it also, it's a full scheme of work. So yeah. it's got... Um, it's got warm-up fine motor activities, warm-up gross motor activities, and they're all videos that the Brilliant. teachers put on and the kids can copy. And it's got... Um, the pre-writing skills in there as well but what I have deliberately done is linked the pre-writing skills to the letters that they relate to because I find a lot of the existing pre-writing stuff is just kind of random groupings of uh, formations and stuff whereas I've very much linked them 
link them together. Um, yeah, so oh, there, there's lots of stuff. There's lots it, of for anyone who hasn't seen any of Kim's videos, they're absolutely brilliant. I know your Crocodile Snap song has nearly, I, I, I had to check this because this is a huge number, yeah. 350,000 views on yeah. YouTube. So if anyone wants to have a look at that, that one's brilliant, isn't it? So yeah, good. Cro- so Crocodile Snap is the <laughs> pencil grip song because I yeah, used to always call the um, Crocodile Fingers. So yeah. kind of you have to snap your pencil it's, or Magic Fingers or Crocodile Fingers, but the kids used to like Crocodile Fingers. So Riot Rules actually is my friend. I was, I'm so fortunate. My friend um, Pat helped me with the music. For, I, I did the lyrics, yeah. but he did the um, the music for the songs. Um, yeah. And he's helped with the handwriting songs as well. So they oh, cool. um, so they're a continuation. Yeah, yeah they're, well, that's good to know that. But yeah, because that Crocodile Snap, I had that in my head when I was doing research for this podcast yeah. and I found that. And then it was one of those ones that gets in your head, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before you go, Kim, can you just yep. give us some links of where people need to go? Because they'll be wanting to look to find yeah. you so what's your website your so social media etc website is um just griffinot.com so griffin spelt like the mythical creature um double <laughs> f-i-n uh and i'm on yeah i'm on facebook i'm on linkedin i'm on twitter most of it's griffin ot facebook sensory griffin sensory ot yeah. um there's two griffin ot's on twitter i've got the oh. underscore um yeah adam griffin's on there as well so if you're looking for me i mean i look very different to adam so like you <laughs> shouldn't might just spot the difference yeah. Yeah, like, you shouldn't get us confused because um, <laughs> we look very different um but yeah so i i am there and i'll i'm sure you can yeah, pop the links, links at the bottom of the po- podcast good. as well so yeah well thanks ever so much kim you've been absolutely brilliant no worries oh i loved my chat with kim isn't she great um do make sure you check out her her social media, her website, her videos, her books, everything. Um, And thanks again for listening to Sending the Experts with me, Georgina Durrant. Follow us on social media and use the hashtag Sending the Experts to make sure people know you've been listening. See you again next time.